Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. This week on the show, we have Alexis McGill-Johnson. She is the CEO and president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And actually, we wanted to have Alexa on the show for a while because, as we'll get to, there have been a lot of new abortion restriction bills introduced across the country that Planned Parenthood is fighting against. Plus, her past work makes her a perfect person to talk about the gender and race disparities we've all been reckoning with during this pandemic, which we'll also get to. But I was recently taken aback by an opinion piece she wrote for the New York Times. It was called, I'm the head of Planned Parenthood. We're done making excuses for our founder. Yes, this is their founder, Margaret Sanger. And she's long been a point of controversy in the reproductive rights movement. Mm -hmm. She opened the first birth control clinic in New York in the early 1900s. But she's also been accused of promoting racism through eugenics. That's selective breeding that has often targeted people of color and for speaking to and associating with white supremacy groups. So for a very long time, Planned Parenthood has wrestled with this uh, troubling history about mm-hmm. its founder. Yeah. And it kind of came to a head recently. You remember last summer, the New York chapter of Planned Parenthood removed her name from the Manhattan Clinic. There was also this movement to try to get a statue of her removed from the Smithsonian. So Alexis recently took it upon herself to clarify where Planned Parenthood stands on all of this. And if I could sum it up in a way that doesn't really do it justice, but I'll try. She said (laughs) that it doesn't matter if Margaret Sanger meant it or not. Some of her practices and the ones that followed harmed communities of color and Planned Parenthood needs to take responsibility for that. Um, She even calls the organization a Karen in some ways because it was so stubborn on centering this white woman's experience, Margaret Sanger, Uh and neglected women of color's experiences as a result. And she goes one step further to say that it still centers women's experiences too narrowly, neglecting trans and non-binary people, which is part of her focus as the leader is to keep finding ways to be more inclusive with their care. And I think that's what this conversation with Lexus is really about. She makes it clear that in order for all women to have access to healthcare and choice in life, we have to address some of these biases that are built into the system that make it harder for certain people to access good care. Um, especially now that the pandemic has opened our eyes wide to those disparities. Yeah, definitely. And prior to her work at Planned Parenthood, Alexis was the co-founder of the Perception Institute, which translates scientific research around race and gender perception into a solution that reduced bias and discrimination. So she's perfectly positioned to talk about some of these things and incredibly smart and well-read on the topic. I'm really excited to talk to her because with that social research background, I feel like she's sort of perfectly positioned to push forward on the issues that Planned Parenthood works on. I can't wait. Let's hear what she has to say. Alexis McGill-Johnson, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I was just saying that this morning I ran and I listened to the uh, Hillary Clinton interview, which was just extraordinary. Oh, uh, she was something, right? It was amazing. Just brilliant. <laughs> you know, I spent a good part of my career on issues of bias and brain science around gendered stereotypes. Yeah. Like, male-dominant narratives are the ones that we are constantly trying to fight against. And when you have a woman trying to, um, she's always going to be balanced up against those because of the way our stereotypes are constructed. So I just thought it was really, really compelling. 
And the funny thing is, is that I think five years ago, when we went through that, people did not think that a woman leading was anything interesting or extraordinary. So they were particularly blind to it. And it's retro in some ways, because five years on, it seems harder than it did earlier. But I know that it's progress because what it really means is, is that we're just more aware of how hard it is. I mean, you were not as a researcher. <laughs> you were aware of how hard it was going to be for a woman to get elected. But uh, I think most of America didn't think it was that big of a deal. And now you do. I think this is what we're experiencing with large over the last year, right? Which is that when you ask people to confront their stereotypes, right? Which is like yes. the genius of like, there's just something about her that you don't want to name what you're actually asking people to do is confront their sense of fairness, right? Because they don't want to believe that they are discriminatory, right? We were raised in all of these ways to believe that, you know, and particularly our generation, right, is, you know, the first generation to genders to be equal, races to be equal, all the hallmark legislation that kind of sits above us. And that, you know, individually, we had the opportunity to continue to achieve whatever we want to achieve. I mean, obviously, knowing that barriers continue to exist. Right. But it's the fact that, the ways in which we've been taught to practice fairness are actually incorrect. Right. And that's where I think people misunderstand stereotypes. It's a bit of a paradox. Because the way we were taught to handle them or believe it, right, is that they didn't exist. Is that to be to act as if you're blind to them as opposed to? Yes. Colorblind, that you were gender blind. We were taught that there was a meritocracy, that the playing field is now fair for everyone, and that it really is about the amount of hard work and talent that you put in there, and that these implicit biases won't be operating in the background. And, you know, we've been taught that we actually can fairly and objectively evaluate other people, you know, that we actually can evaluate their talent without having these things slip in. And so what I always talked about is the fact that, like, I do believe you when you tell me you are fair and you are a good person and that you are not, you know, racist or sexist and, you know, and that you're raising your kids to be the same way. And then I have to challenge you as to whether or not the ways in which you were taught to practice that fairness, because fairness is a practice, is really the way in which I want to be seen as a Black woman, you know, in this way. So, I mean, the way you've just presented it seems as a very productive way to ask that question of someone. You said all the things that make people comfortable. I believe you that you're fair and that you're not sexist and you're not racist and not that you're doing it wrong, but you were taught the wrong way, right? Yes. It's a little bit of a, a whisperer role. <laughs> and, and I think oftentimes we shut down conversations by challenging the core of who people are, right? I mean, I think it's highly immoral to be uh, racist. It's highly immoral to be sexist, and particularly, again, having come through what we've come through as a, as a nation over the last 400 years, and yet the ways in which our bodies literally respond, you know, our brains literally respond to someone's being is something that we have to actually train and, you know, transform. You know, we see it in Planned Parenthood and in trans care, right? And in mm-hmm. kind of shifts that we are making in the kind of being part of a welcoming and belonging community, talking about our pronouns, you know, normalizing conversations and fighting stigma. It really is about retraining our practices of fairness in ways that align with the kind of equity that we want to see in the world. But it's not just a given. And I think that the disarming way of getting people to that core of belonging first, that you see them as part of your kind of circle of concern and that they are there, and then walking them through where their values and behavior sometimes misalign is a key way to disarm. 
That is some of the most actionable <laughs> and productive guidance that I've heard on how to talk to people about gender and race. That is what this podcast is trying to get at the root of, right? Is these sort of blobs <laughs> that cloud people's thinking and shed some light on that. This is a good way to start, Alexis. That was fantastic. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you mentioned what our country has been through. And I've read that you describe this time period right now in a way that I've also looked at it, which is, it feels to me that we are in the midst of an epic historic power struggle. Exactly. You know, there have been progressive wins. Joe Biden is president. We have our first woman vice president, our first vice president who is a woman of color. But at the same time, there's this epic struggle for control. You said, quote, it's no coincidence that the same politicians attacking reproductive rights are also pushing anti-voter bills and anti-LGBTQ plus bills, policies that are rooted in white supremacy. These politicians know that to realize their policy agenda, they must first dismantle democracy and protect their own power and privilege. I want to get to all of that, but let's start with what's most relevant to your work at Planned Parenthood, which is the chipping away at reproductive rights. This year, medication abortion restrictions and bans have tripled since this time in 2019. Anti-abortion constitutional amendments have tripled. 12 abortion restrictions have been enacted this year. Can you tell us, particularly at the local and state levels, how is this battle playing out? Yeah, I mean... Part of how we have to understand this moment that we are in right now is like, I've been calling it like halftime since 2010, when we saw the change in Congress, the literal weaponization of the, you know, census process, gerrymandering that transformed not only Congress, but also many state legislative houses across the country. What happened is that, you know, essentially, you know, very well-funded vocal minority was able to build the essentially power inside of many states across the country. And we look at, you know, anti-women's health states or anti-sexual and reproductive health states at numbers up to about 29, where we have very hostile legislatures that, as you mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. just as of mid-March this year, compared to 2019, have proposed medication abortion restrictions, which have tripled constitutional amendments against abortion, which have also tripled and done so in a way that are like the most kind of egregious, insane kind of restrictions that are just like not common sense, right? You know, South Carolina was the first state that passed a, an abortion ban before people even know they're pregnant six weeks, right? I mm -hmm. found out I was pregnant at seven. You know, Arkansas has gone from near total ban on abortion to medically unnecessary restrictions, making it harder. You know, Texas continues to onslaught of bills that are trying to winnow access. It's literally the kitchen sink, right? It's the six-week ban. It's the restrictions on medication abortion. It's the bill that would ban abortion if Roe were overturned. Um, and I think they are all very deliberately intended to fast track to the court structure that we have now, right? And mm -hmm. you've seen these state legislatures that no longer represent the popular majority in their own states, much less the national consensus, mainstream consensus that Roe should be the law of the land. We have the judiciary fully remade under Trump and, and McConnell over the last four years, including the Supreme Court. 
and this kind of opportunity that they are seizing by weaponizing all of these rules changes over the last decade to try to position a fundamental challenge to Roe. And, you know, what it feels like on the ground is a lot of confusion. You know, it's so interesting about Roe. I'm on the television show, show Tobin's The Circus, and my colleague Alex Wagner went to a Women for Trump rally in North Carolina the week that Amy Comey Barrett was being voted on to see how motivating overturning Roe was. And she spoke with a number of women, and I know that the polling reflects this, and none of them wanted Roe overturned. <laughs> they all said that they just thought it was, you know, well, that's never going to happen. It was like she was bringing up this unpleasant thing at their nice garden party. <laughs> um, but what, you know, can you walk through the process of what it would look like, you know, pick a bill, how it will progress in the system to get to the Supreme Court and what that would mean, you know, for women, for all of us, if it did, in fact, be overturned? Yeah, of course. And look, I mean, I'll start right where you ended, which is, you know, absolutely like the majority of American support believe Roe should be the law of land. And we also know that Roe is the floor, right? Because that even though the right exists across all of these states, the number of barriers and restrictions that have been put in place over the last 10 years demonstrate that there is limitation in access depending on, on where you are. And our reproductive justice colleagues, you know, continually call on us to make sure that while we are actively talking about Roe, we have to make sure we understand that Roe is not working already you know, what it would look like. Right now, there are about 17, 18 cases that are one step away from the Supreme Court in terms of challenging some of those restrictions. If any one of those cases, you know, came to the court and the Supreme Court could make a couple of choices, right? They could adjudicate it and, you know, eradicate Roe, like overturn Roe rather, which would essentially remove the federal protections and would mean that state by state, we would have differential access. So, you know, in some states where Roe has already been codified into their state constitution or have a protective amendments and acts around it, you know, people would still be able to gain access. And some of these other states, particularly these ones where they're actively kind of pushing the constitutional amendments, it would mean that you would be, you know, forced into pregnancy if you did not have access outside of your state, if you could not travel outside of your state. And so, we're looking at a world where upwards of 25 million women living in states of reproductive age. So 25 million women of reproductive age would be living in states without the federal protection or state protection for the right to abortion. You know, that's what is at stake here. You know, you will end up where we saw in COVID when the executive orders started coming down from our governors. Many governors in states stopped access to abortion as, as a non-time sensitive, non-essential care. Not time sensitive. <laughs> Not time sensitive at all. Um, we saw people getting in their cars, right? Driving 16, 18 hours from Texas to Colorado. Colorado saw a 700% increase in patients traveling from Texas to, in wow. some cases, just access medication abortion. So like two pills mm -hmm. that you would take under you know, 10 weeks. And like the thing that won't happen is people won't stop seeking <laughs> access to abortion. Right. Some of these women that were affected by this pandemic restrictions, these are the same women that are deemed as essential workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our bodies are essential, right? We were asked right. to, you know, show up at school, show up in care facilities, show up in nursing, show up in nursing homes, you know, showing up to care, right, for our families. And yet, you know, you don't get to control what your essential body does. Sari put it really great when we were preparing for this interview, she said that liberty is so fickle for women. 
that these laws can come and go. They can be vetoed by Democratic governors. Our state legislature can come back in and undo the what has been done. But it's a very precarious, unstable, dangerous way for women to have to live. Is there any path to ensuring some kind of stability? Building and holding power. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's really, that's what it comes down to, right? I mean, that's why, you know, winning in the States is so critical. Um, it's why democracy reform is so critical. It's why, you know, ensuring that what we've seen in just the kind of clawback of rights over the last decade, you know, it's a function of rules changes, right? It's mm-hmm. a function of men being, you know, unapologetic about using their power to control and blatant about it, right? Like they're actually saying their inside voice out loud, right? Because people say. Yes. How about the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson? He really said the quiet part out loud when he signed that bill, basically banning abortion in his state. Yes. When he signed the restriction, talked about very clearly that this was intended to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, I signed it because it is a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. That was the intent of it. I think there's a very narrow chance that the Supreme Court will accept that case, but we'll see. Again, like the hiding behind, we want to make sure that, you know, access to abortion is safe, it is medically safe, and, you know, doing these restrictions in the name of protecting the patient, and then just being very clear about the fact that actually, no, we want to see this overturned. We want to see this go all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, he's just like out and out admitting to that. Just saying the quiet part out loud. That's a good time to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Alexis McGill Johnson, Planned Parenthood president and CEO on Just Something About Her. We're back to Just Something About Her with our guest, Alexis McGill-Johnson. Alexis, you just laid out the ways in which state legislatures around the country are passing legislation to restrict abortion access with the intent of overturning Roe v. Wade, which we know is not popular opinion. We also know that these governing bodies are majority male, which leads me to my next big question. (laughs) Do you have a theory about... Why men think they should have so much control over a woman's body. I will go first. When I sort of absorbed as a child this notion that women were not as powerful as men, it just like I never believed it. That was just so evidently false. You know, my own mother was so strong to be superhuman. Um, You know, and women gave birth, right? Women give life. So what is more powerful than that? And I wonder if, the fear, misogyny, if this comes from a fear of how much power being able to give life is. I agree. I think that, you know, look, I was also raised by an incredibly strong mom who raised four very different, incredibly strong and independent daughters. Me too. One of four girls. Yeah, Yeah, four girls. yeah. Yeah. And we're actually, we're all between five and seven years apart. So, Mm -hmm. you know, every five or seven years, she another one and just added to this level of fierceness and our belief of we can do anything regardless of race, regardless of gender. I also grew up watching my mom bring my father the big piece of chicken every, (laughs) every Sunday dinner. Right. And so I think that what men are protecting 
isn't so much freedom as it is entitlement. Mm. In the same way, I think that, you know, the white supremacy and the race reckoning that we are in isn't so much protecting, you know, the freedom to exist as it is to protecting kind of an entitlement and in many ways, protecting the status, the non-economic status that we've seen kind of form the base of the GOP. I do worry that, you know, we are like without actually naming that, that sense of, you know, it's not economic anxiety. It is really about racial anxiety and it's about control and status anxiety and how power is being used to protect those pieces that we're actually having the wrong fights in a lot of ways, right? Because we're actually not, yeah. not naming it. And, you know, we're having a conversation around race and gender rights, but we're actually not naming the fact that like, Folks have been trained to practice their fairness around race and gender in ways that are actually not consistent. And so if we don't actually connect the dots there, I think we'll continue to have basically the same fights that we've been having over the last couple of decades. It does feel like that's what's missing in the conversation. You know, I'm glad we're having this one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking like, maybe there's just something about him. <laughs> <laughs> Let's figure out what that is. <laughs> what is it? Let's puzzle over him. Why is he having such a hard time? Yeah, because he's been raised to believe that he is entitled to all of these things. And here are right. people saying, actually, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. as well as you, if not better. But then we also fall into these patterns, right? I don't know about you during the pandemic, yeah. but like I fell right at like, here I am leading Planned Parenthood. I've got two school-aged children. I was Zooming. I was the one making dinner. I was the one, yeah. you know, doing all the laundry. I was the one kind of doing all of the invisible labor just automatically without even stopping to think about it because it wouldn't get done and then getting on my own Zooms and navigating, you know, the organization through the crisis of the last year, the Trump administration plus, you know, election pandemic race reckoning. But I just assumed that that was it. Right. And so we reinforce that in a lot of ways too. Do you think about both just in real life and also at Planned Parenthood, how do we start these conversations you're talking about with men? Do you have any sons or do you, you said you have children? But you don't have two girls. Two girls. So I don't know if we start these conversations young, if young boys and young men are sort of absorbing this as they live through the reckoning that we're all living through now. So I, I would go back to the science of, of actually understanding how stereotypes. That sounds great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> science sounds good than me speculating. <laughs> <laughs> what we know about how our brains uh, and when our brains start embedding stereotypes, we know that between two and five, it is about noticing difference, right? Like mm -hmm. you were tall and short, you know, your color is this way, your hair looks like this, your eyes, you know, you live in this environment. I live in this environment. It's just ways to actually create distinction because you're actually building knowledge. Between five and eight, children start to understand that there are stereotypes associated with people, but they may not necessarily have meaning. And by 10, you essentially have embedded hierarchy, racial hierarchy, gender hierarchy, and you understand the meaning associated with those various stereotypes. And then like literally from 10 to 99, we're trying to unlearn them, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of how our, our society is structured because through all of that, we're also telling people that you also should be colorblind, you should be genderblind, you should be 
fair in this way. You are in a society where you can do anything that you want. And so we have these kind of meta messages that layer onto our brains actually learning the value that different groups are getting in society. So they're seeing how men are, you know, little boys are treated and and exalted. They're seeing them consistently on their TV in leadership as president and leadership in representation of running companies. And so what's important is to actually really think differently about how we start at that two to five year where we think that children aren't absorbing when in fact, that's actually the most critical time Right. For them to be invested in it, specifically if we want to change paradigms around who deserves rights and who doesn't. Um, you've written a lot about, uh, you had this great piece in L about how you are struggling, but also trying to empower women now. I want to read part of this and talk about how the pandemic has been affecting women. But if there's something positive that might, we might be able to salvage from this. Um, you said, I want to stop asking for permission to sleep in or apologizing because my eight-year-old Zoom bombed my calls with my team or even worse, members of Congress. I want my staff to understand that it's okay if they need to mute or go off video to be a caregiver or a partner, and I don't want them to apologize to me either. Instead of carrying guilt or second-guessing, I'll focus on being clear and intentional with my partner about our expectations of each other at work and at home since they are now the same place. This is critical, not just for the sake of my sanity or my marriage or my job, but also to model for our two young children how to advocate for our needs and manage our boundaries. What better time than a pandemic to learn such a critical life skill? Knowing how much we've lost in this pandemic, that the women who suffer the most job loss, we're also the most essential workers, we're also the lowest paid essential workers, had to live through some of the abortion restrictions that you named earlier, but we've also seen that we can't do it all and that life requires more flexibility. Coming out of this, how do you think about what we might change for women that would make this all easier to navigate? You're right. Women, the majority of essential workers and caregivers, even if we don't give ourselves those names, Mm -hmm. you know, those titles, that is exactly what we have done. And it's how we have carried, you know, this country literally through the pandemic and, you know, borne the brunt of the consequences. Almost two and a half million women have left the workforce, right? The disproportionate impact on COVID and the workforce on Black and Latina women is unbelievable. And my husband's actually an economist and, you know, been talking a lot about just like, it will take a generation for women to get back to the rate prior to. COVID. We've been fighting for a generation, <laughs> you and I, and we've lost a generation. So that is the incredible impact when you devalue gender, both through a set of stereotypes, but then also there are a set of structures and institutions yes. where those stereotypes get embedded. And then it creates that kind of generational shift. And I think that that is something that the pandemic is really demonstrating how systemic disparities work, how healthcare disparities work, how gender employment disparities work, and how you layer on intersectionally race or geography. And that continues to show the disparate impact of what you have access to. If you, you know, I could go to my doctor in New York if I wanted access to medication abortion, but someone else has to drive you know, 20 hours and take time off, put their kids in the car, you know, get their elderly mom and ask them to travel through COVID counties in order to get access to what I can get, you know, down the street. And so that kind of fundamental disparity, I think, has been impacting women disproportionately, and particularly women of color. 
I think that, you know, a year ago in the, in the midst of this moment, Planned Parenthood Action Fund became a founding member of the We Demand More Coalition, which was made up of more than 70 organizations, organizations like Moms Rising, the National Women's Law Center, all above all. And it was really about spending this last year fighting increasingly and tirelessly just for women and women of color to be prioritized in COVID relief to look through the lens of racial equity and gender justice, to make sure that, you know, we saw the American Rescue Plan. Yeah, that was an amazing starting point. Uh, child tax credits, increased funding for Title X, right, which domestic ag will have been imposed in 2019. And it also passed without additional restrictions on abortion through like an additional Hyde Amendment, right? And so like, I think that what that demonstrates to me is that when we do come together, when we weaponize our own power and we say, this is what we're going to stand together and fight for on things that actually will transform people's lives and stave off us falling off a generational cliff of progress, that we actually can make a huge difference together. That to me is the silver lining, the fact that organizations continue to come together to center women, to center race equity, really center folks who've been the most impacted, you know, building that legislative house around the canary. And I think that that actually is exciting. And then on, you know, on the personal front, I think it is the kind of letting go of the, some of the old habits of not taking that time for self-care, which I thought was so hokey for so long. (laughs) Yeah. When I came off the campaign trail and I came back to DC and heard people talk about self-care in 2017, I was like, what? You know, now you get it. Totally. There's like a glass ceiling element to how we felt we were making progress prior to the pandemic to mean that we weren't ever actually going to achieve equity until we got to these foundational issues about all the structures that value men's work over women's work. You know, did you see that coming or did you think that we were on an okay path before? You know, look, I think that we've undeniably made progress, right? Going back to how devaluing and hierarchy works, you know, it starts off with ideas about inferiority. You know, those ideas get embedded into institutions and systems and laws. And people. And you can change the idea, right? You know, your kids were on the playground and some boy came up and said, you know, girls can't do that. You would have an answer immediately for that little boy. Like those ideas are antiquated. You know, we have transformed many laws. You know, we still have a lot more to go, including Equal Rights Act and, you know, passing legislation like the Equality Act, WIPA, things that would help enshrine our, our rights further into law. But long after, like, you dismantle the ideas of the hierarchy and the institutional hierarchy, there still are these patterns of informal interaction, right? The ways in which we just navigate that we have to, like, constantly do differently and think differently. And so I think part of what becomes hard in that work is it's so individualized, right? We are fighting these battles daily, you know, in our homes, you know, in our offices around specific bills or legislation, but that being able to see and to continue to document the impact of what is happening singularly to women, I think is really important. And so, yes, we were going to hit this cliff because without ongoing and sustained mobilization, without ongoing kind of building of power. And to think about it, not just in terms of like 
self-determination of like I Alexis, but in social determination mm-hmm. of like, how are we going to actually continue to move the ball forward and center women and gender? And I do think this year has given us, you know, a stronger framework of understanding disparate impact, as well as understanding how when we actually build power intersectionally, when we look at legislation through lenses around gender and race, and when we actually share power in ways that are centering the most marginalized, that is a path to sustainability. That is a path to really transforming what the next generation will experience. And our job is to continue to now bring it back into the next generation of two to 10 year olds, (laughs) how we are actually going to transform their brains moving forward, because that's actually what is going to help sustain the progress and not kind of retract. It's time to take a break, but when we get back, I want to talk more specifically about Planned Parenthood in this moment with Alexis McGill-Johnson on Just Something About Her. We're back with Planned Parenthood's president, Alexis McGill-Johnson, on Just Something About Her. So last fall, I went to Iowa and I interviewed Aaron Davison Rippey, who was the head of Planned Parenthood for Iowa and is now the Iowa Democratic Party's executive director. At the time, she told me that one of the big motivating factors uh, that helped get their chapter a lot of support was the Iowa state legislature passing an abortion ban. Um, she said that there was a big backlash to that and that they found they were able to recruit more volunteers and supporters and encourage more women to run, like all of that sort of stuff. Paired with, of course, Trump's attack on women already motivating people. And I'm wondering, did you see that same type of phenomenon happening at the national level? Absolutely. I mean, I think that what you're naming is the fact that when we see these kind of egregious pants and bills and things, um, there is a backlash to the backlash, right? So in 2018, 2019, 2020, big champions for sexual and reproductive health care from, you know, our first pro-choice majority house. You know, you think about the Georgia ban in 2019, the state passed a six-week abortion ban. And less than two years later, we have two senators who are like unequivocal in their support. I heard that come up a lot in Georgia too, when I was, you know, covering those races. Yes. Totally. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to have Reverend Warnock to be as beautifully thoughtful around what it means to be a a pastor and 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 a sex peer educator formerly and you know someone who can articulate the the value and the choice and name the freedom and then to have Asaf who's you know wife is an OBGYN you know to like get it instinctively and to be able to not run in a state where people might think you can't actually have a conversation around sexual and reproductive health and abortion there so i do think that we have seen the backlash happen consistently. I think there's a limit to it when there's gerrymandering, right? So like, you know, that is probably the place where we most need to do the work around the census in the coming year. But I do believe that that connection between knowing these rights are under assault and under attack and creating that fire for people to want to jump in and protect. We saw it in Colorado in 2020 with the 22-week ban. And we also saw it with Senator Gary Peters, who, you know, talking about speaking to men spoke his family's abortion story and talked about it as his family story. Yeah, that was so powerful. 
Let's play that from Senator Gary Peters of Michigan. It's important for these stories uh, to be told. And and I know uh, women, uh, what they go through in losing a child and the anguish they go through, I experienced it firsthand uh, with my wife. And it's, it's the whole family, it's uh, husbands, it's other loved ones. These are decisions that need to be made by a woman. They are incredibly difficult. Uh, it really did bring more people into the conversation. You know, he went from being a little bit down to like skyrocketing in the polls. He got, you know, 50,000 new donors. I mean, it just was like an insane yeah. rise. And again, when people feel like they cannot have the conversation, what they don't realize, and again, this is also kind of part of the brain, is that the conversation is still happening. You're just not actually steering it because it's happening implicitly around you. And then so I think it's really important to really support champions and help them give voice and, you know, to bring more men into the conversation in ways that they are able to name and articulate the experience. That's right, because it is not as if that conversation isn't going on in people's minds or it's just all told by the other side. Yes, exactly. I'm wondering if in your work, either with the women that you work with at Planned Parenthood or the woman you work on behalf of, is there something that has inspired you, that surprised you, that's inspired you or surprised you in a good way about how you keep going, doing the work that you do? Absolutely. I talked to a woman last year from Louisiana in the midst of um, some of these COVID restrictions. She was basically seeking access to abortion and, you know, through Google ended up at a crisis pregnancy center that had, you know, promised her that they would help her only to continue to mislead her, give her misinformation, kind of delay her access to abortion. They kept telling her to come back, you know, she'd take off like a day for appointments, drive three hours one way, thinking that that was going to be the time that she actually was able to get the procedure. And then finally, realized that they were never going to give her access to abortion. And then she ended up finding a Planned Parenthood who referred her to an abortion provider in Louisiana, and she was able to have the procedure. And I asked her, you know, just like, how did you feel like during that time? And I can only imagine, you know, they were shaming her, they were blaming her, trying to put all these fictions in her head about what was right, wrong. And um, she said, I was just mad. <laughs> So I was just really, really mad, you know, and it was like, just kind of crystallized, you know, like, right. that's really what it is. Like, you're just damn bad. <laughs> like, it's, it's like to dig deep into some of these, you know, outrageous bills and bans that we've seen, you know, triple fold over the last couple of months to see the insanity and the directness with which they are using and wielding their power to get to the Supreme Court. It's like, like trying to get lost in the details. And, you know, honestly, it's like, it just makes you mad. It just makes you mad. <laughs> and mad is a very motivating emotion. Mad is good. Mad is good. And so like, that's what I keep coming back to. This has been like truly a, just like a really phenomenal conversation. I'm so grateful that you came on. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. Wow, I found that, like, really illuminating. I know. I feel like in all of these conversations we've been having throughout the pandemic, last summer, continuing through now, that has really been just one that reframed things for me in a very different way than I've heard before. 
what's so brilliant about her, she completes the circle. It's not just this is why things are the way they are when it comes to race or this is why things the way they are when it comes to gender. She also addressed here's how we talk about it in a way that will bring people along. You know, when she had that whole riff about telling people you've been taught to practice fairness wrong. I thought that was so that's so smart because you're not telling people it's their fault or they're racist or they're sexist. It's like you were taught wrong. It's not your fault. So let's learn a different way. I mean, she's just right. like really thought through why things are the way they are and what people can do differently now. I just found that like really helpful. Yeah, because she's acknowledging that it's often a disconnect between what you believe, because we all do believe that we are fair and believe that we can practice fairness, but we might not be actually doing that. And I really like that she put it as it is a practice. It's like, you know, we need to acknowledge that we have these internal biases that we learned from the time we were two years old. Yeah. And also acknowledge that we do have physical and emotional reactions to certain people, to women, to people of color because of learned stereotypes. And once we acknowledge that, we can really practice working against those. It's like she brings together both stories and science. And I think that's really helpful, too, because, you know, facts are facts. And I think that most of us, maybe not (laughs) some of the country, appreciates facts. For example, what really like stood out to me was how she told us about like ages two to five, we're noticing difference ages five to 10, we're making meaning out of those difference. And then age 10 to 99, we're like unlearning those stereotypes. Like it made me think instead of creating stereotypes from ages two to 10 that bleed into our institutions and create these disparities, why can't we create institutions from the time we're young that teach equity and fairness in the way that we want them practiced through the rest of our lives? It's like just flipping the series of events that she laid out, basically. And how you now have to center gender and race in politics, policy systems, like literally thinking about those experiences and considering them important enough to create policies around them. But she does all of this with a lot of empathy and kindness, yeah. right? That is very disarming. So yeah. I, I'm so glad that we had her, but she needs, she needs a lot of platforms. She needs a big platform. <laughs> she needs a big platform and she needs to be heard a lot because she has really valuable advice. She made it seem so obvious. Truly brilliant people, they make things seem obvious, but like that was fantastic. Lexis McGill Johnson, awesome. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Alexis McGill Johnson for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro Russell is our executive producer.